Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this wonderful privilege of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the completed canon of Scripture, this wonderful thing that we're able to refer back to, to learn from, to be edified from. We know that your Spirit inspired it, even though men penned it. We know that your Son was the very manifestation of it, as the author and perfecter of our faith even. May we be inspired appropriately by its very presence in our lives and never take it for granted, but dine on it each and every day of our lives in some way, shape, or form. Speaking of which, thank you for this evening, Father. You ordained it from eternity past. Thank you for allowing us the time to fellowship with those that are on the other side of the planet even and from a different time as well. But that's what your word does. It knits us all together, brothers and sisters in Christ, Father. For this we are so very grateful. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you to those. I just realized that I got most of my voice back. So thank you for the prayers. Um, I appreciate it. I didn't know when that was going to end. Um, as I've encouraged you to do uh, throughout this series, again, this is the uh, Women's Conference morning session that last Friday that Joey and I were in India called God's Divine Design for the Woman. Uh, as I've encouraged you throughout the series, um, try to, you know, transport yourselves back to India uh, to May 19th at around 10 a.m. with this lovely group of ladies. There was about, I don't know, I'd say 100 or so, maybe a little bit more, uh, in the audience. And uh, I had shared that with you in my letters that they had been there almost, I'd say, a total of about five hours, and they were just so grateful for the opportunity. Um, so imagine that, what it would have been like to be there with all those women, uh, even in the sweltering heat and humidity, who sang, uh, as unto the Lord, and awaited with eager hearts for the truth being taught to them. And then again, as I intimated in my letter to you in India, or from India, they got up and testified to how very grateful they were for God's grace in North Christian's church, uh, our presence in their lives that day. They were uh, touched, and I was sort of, you know, choking up uh, as it was being translated for me. Um, they were just very grateful, and it's really nice to see, very nice to see. Um, this was the start of the lesson, though, for them that I'll be giving you this evening. God's divine design, the very first woman, the woman we know as Eve, was created by God to fill an inadequacy in man. Again, she was created by God to fill an inadequacy in man. As we will see, if man wasn't inadequate, he wouldn't have needed a helper, let's put it that way. As we will see in Holy Scripture's account of God's creation, God made the first man, Adam, a helper that was suitable for him. So as believers, we really need to understand what that means exactly. 
And there's really no place to find such an answer except in the Bible. And I was thinking about this this morning when I was preparing. I would argue that this is the problem in our society when it comes to women. Women aren't going to the Bible to learn about their purpose in life. They're not going to the Bible to understand what God's design is for them, what it's been from the very beginning. They are turning to false teachers and even to each other. So whether you're a man or a woman, it's critical to accept wholly what the Bible has to say about God's design for the woman. That's where we get the substance of what we're going to talk about this evening. It's critical to accept wholly what the Bible has to say about God's design for the woman. I can tell you this, it's incredibly beautiful. What I see in this world, in our own society, is incredibly ugly. But what I see in Holy Scripture for women is incredibly beautiful, um, magnificent. The Apostle Paul wrote about God's design for women many years after the first woman was created. Go to 1 Corinthians 11.8. 1 Corinthians 11.8. So Paul wrote about this, and he was, you know, unabashed about sharing such truths as I am today. I mean, I'm not going to kowtow to uh, the pressures of feminism and whatever you want to call it in today's society. 1 Corinthians 11.8 For man does not originate from women, a woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. And so there's a bi-directional dependence up here in the board that we ought to think about, and this is scriptural. Man and woman were designed to depend on each other. That's part of God's divine design. Man and woman were designed to depend on each other. While the ways in which they serve each other may differ, the simple fact is that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27. So we're codependent, men and women. This means that neither men nor women ought to feel neither superior nor inferior to one another. This was one of the things that um, one of the women that came up and testified after really and truly enjoyed was uh, a bit, I think, taken aback by this statement that neither men or women are neither superior nor inferior to one another. I have seen even in America where some men think that because God has given them authority that they are somehow superior in God's eyes. And that is false thinking and an attack on God's divine design for man-woman relationships. So up here on the board, one of the first things we have to realize from the Bible on God's divine design in general is there's a difference between authority and superiority. Women are subordinate, not inferior. 
There's a difference. Women are subordinate, not inferior. There's a big difference between authority and superiority. Again, verse First uh, Corinthians eleven eleven. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Up here on the board, on Adam's helpmeet, God created man purposely inadequate. He then created women to complement him. This does not mean that women are inferior to men. However, divine authority has been given to men, particularly in marriage. For example, Adam and Eve. That's our first example. Again, God created man purposely inadequate. He knew he'd end, end up creating a woman. He then created a woman to complement him. This does not mean that women are inferior to men. However, divine authority has been given to men, particularly in marriage. What a Christian woman must first understand is that she, her person, is a gift from God to man. So this is a very good thing. This is a beautiful thing. That women are a gift from God to man. It's true. She was first to fail her duties towards the Lord God. But we ought not despise the sinner, only the sin. As I wrote in this coming Saturday's blog, it's God's job to express wrath, not ours. Up here on the board, Romans 12:19. So it's true, she failed first. Romans 12:19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We don't express we don't pour out wrath on others that's not our job that's God's job in his timing the way he decides to do it we might say it with this quip up here on the board what to despise we hate the sin not the sinner God's design for women is a beautiful thing let us not perceive women as anything less than a gift from God to mankind that's the right way to look at women that's a healthy way to look at women. Not objects to be used or abused, but actually gifts from God to mankind. And that should make you women out there uh, hearing my voice uh, feel good about things as well. Understanding that you're a gift and that you were meant to be a gift. That you were something that man needed because he was lacking. So you see, you have real purpose. Uh, and as I read in, uh, what was it, Genesis 1.27... Uh, male and female, he created them in his image. And so we're sort of together, we're sort of the, the, the greater image of God, if you would, the, the feminine and the, and the masculine sides. So let's read about the first man and woman in the Bible. Go to Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15. I'm almost inclined to say that, you know, if you're doing what I do and you just sort of pray on it and you say, God, what, you know, what book do you want me to read next? That's how I've been going about my own studies. I teeter back and forth sometimes between the Old Testament and New Testament. But I would say the most, one of the most common reads that I've had is Genesis. And every single time I'm blown away. It's like I'll read, you know, a few books in the New Testament, 
Then I go, God, what do you want me to read next? He goes, go back to Genesis. I go back to Genesis. I'm just like, oh, my word, my mind is blown. It's like a, re, um, it's like a resettling, if you would, or like a, a ratcheting in. Because, you know, especially in, you know, when you're in the, quote, unquote, the game that I'm in where I'm trying to dig deep for all of you, you know, explain things, you know, doctrinal issues, this kind of comparing Scripture and Scripture. Um, it's nice to go back to the primitives in Genesis. And what you see is that it's so simple. God's design is obvious from the get-go. And then what happened at the fall is obvious from the get-go. And all we see is just different manifestations of it throughout human history. And reading Genesis always takes you back to these primitives. It's just magnificent. Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. I've taught you this many times. Up here on the board, though, you will surely die. In the original Hebrew, this phrase refers to two distinct, though integrated, deaths. It means dying spiritually, you will die physically. This was the promised curse for failing the test. Now, as a side note, the curse was not somehow contained in the fruit. It was in the broken command. There's nothing in the Bible that I've ever read that says the fruit itself had like some poison in it, <laughs> you know, that made you fall or something. No. It was the fact that they broke the command. It, he could have said, don't touch that twig. Right? He could have said anything. It was a test. So that's how you have to think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is the, uh, the name of the tree, but you have to think that that was um, indicative of um, the failed test. I don't want to get into that, but mankind's first test. There's nothing in the Bible that says the tree or its fruit were inherently bad, other than the fact that God commanded Adam not to eat from it. This was designed as a test and has since become the symbol of man's fall in the garden. So in other words, I was trying to teach this audience that it was really, you should focus on the test itself, not the fruit, or was it a fig, or was it an apple, you know, was it whatever, you know, like idiots do. It was the test, and God put before them a test, and they failed. So there's nothing in the Bible that says the tree or its fruit were inherently bad, like poison or something like that, other than the fact that God commanded Adam not to eat from it. This was designed as a test and has since become the symbol of man's fall in the garden. We also notice that God gave the guidelines of the test to the man first. As the head of the household, Adam would have given this command to his wife also once she was created. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. 
Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh that, uh, at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We shall be called, uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so there you have the first marriage in view up here on the board. The first human institution was marriage, where two individuals came together, Adam and Eve. The term joined in Genesis 2.24 carries with it no room for divorce. Now that's something that I've learned recently. Uh, that specific word itself, joined, in Genesis 2.24, carries with it no room for divorce. One flesh refers to the sexual relationship ordained by God for marriage only. So there's an awful lot going on, isn't there? Think of the will of God. The very first marriage, he said, you will be joined and there's no room for divorce. What I join, let no man separate. Sound familiar? There's no room for divorce in this thing, okay? And then one flesh is sexual relationship between you two and you two alone, and that is it. That is, that is what we see in the original account between the first man and the first woman in the first marriage. Any questions on God's will? That's the divine design from the get-go. That was it. Nice and simple, right? And if everybody lived that way, wouldn't the world be a, nice, a nicer place? <laughs> so one of the first things we have to understand is that God designed marriage between man and woman to be final, with no exceptions. Now that may be offensive to some people, but I don't care, because that was God's design. God designed marriage between man and, man and women to be final, with no exceptions. That was the design, with no exceptions. Don't believe me? Then maybe you believe your Lord and Savior, who said, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That was Jesus' opinion of divorce. So there was no room for divorce in the original design. Since this isn't a lesson on divorce, I'll end this point by saying that just because God allows something, doesn't mean it's his will. God allows evil all the time. But are we to say evil is his will? No. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that just because a spouse does this or that, that God desires for them to divorce. Let me say that again. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that just because a spouse does this or that, that God desires for them to divorce. In fact, we just read the very mind of Christ in Mark 10, 9, didn't we? And that says the exact opposite. So the plain truth on that matter is people looking for loopholes in the Bible aren't seeking God's will. Rather, they are looking to justify something contrary to it. What was God's will? Let no man separate what I have joined. 
There's no room in the design for marriage for divorce because that's God's will. Now, he may make, and I know some of you are going, well, what about 1 Corinthians 7? And blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, hey, settle down there, smarty pants. It's not like I haven't read these things. It's not like these things aren't in the Bible. We're talking about the divine design of God for man and women. And specifically, we're going to get to women, but this was related to women, obviously. What is joined, God doesn't want it separated. It's that simple. So enough said on that. Before the fall, Adam and women and the woman were totally content. Think about that. Before the fall, these two individuals were totally content, understanding God's design for both of them. Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Up here on the board. Before the fall, there was no dissatisfaction between man and woman. The woman wasn't saying, does my butt look big in these jeans? <laughs> they were naked. Adam wouldn't have known better anyways. He would have said, you're beautiful, sweetie, no matter what. Maybe you should cut back on the apples, though. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just trying to make you relax. <laughs> right? Before the fall, there was no dissatisfaction between men and women. Just imagine that for a second. Even you married people. Some of you are like, oh, you know this or that, or I'm still a little shy about this. Come on. Now, here's where we see the first fracture in the very first marriage in human history. Consider that Satan hates the divine institution of marriage because it is designed to bring glory to God. Satan hates marriage because it's designed to bring glory to God. Satan also knew that between the man and the woman, the woman was the weaker vessel. We know that from Scripture. Peter wrote about that up here in the board, 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. Knowing this, Satan attacked the woman first. He knew that if he could make the woman fall, he could damage the first or the perfect institution of marriage that God had created. Go to uh, Genesis 3.1. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Of course, she added that, but up here on the board, the point up here on the board is this, that the woman knew better. At this point, she's having a conversation with the serpent, and she's, she knows she shouldn't be eating from this tree. By the biblical account, the woman absolutely knew God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God designed that she knew wholeheartedly. So, but because she was weak, she accepted the lie from the serpent. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. So here's the lie. For God knows that in the day that you eat, uh, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Up here on the board, <clears throat> the woman deceived. The woman was tempted by the false promise of the serpent that she might have more 
than what God had already given her by grace. It was a lie. And some people speculate. I don't like to speculate. Um, but some people speculate as a possibility. You know, maybe she was trying to please her husband. Maybe she was trying to do good by the family. If it's not in the Bible, I'm not going to teach it. But for whatever reason, Satan knew, or Satan knew who to tempt, obviously. And he tempted her in such a way that she thought maybe she'd have more than what God had already given her by grace. Satan always makes false promises to tempt mankind. Isn't that what I've taught for years now? Every temptation you're ever given is some kind of an abomination, as if to say, what God's giving you right now, this day, you should be malcontent with. I can give you more. Isn't that what every temptation is? It is. Do this because what you have right now isn't enough. What God's giving you isn't what I can give you. I can give you more. That's what temptation usually is, is it not? And we fall for it. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Up here on the board. So Adam falls. What God had knit together in the garden perfectly, Satan had unraveled in reverse order. Satan knew the beautiful design for the woman, so he attacked it and destroyed it. We could say the same thing about our society today. Satan knows the beautiful design that God has for women, and so he destroys it. I mean, these, uh, it's sad what I see. Young ladies, um, it's horrible what, what, what young girls are being inundated with. Um, immediately being told that um, you better watch out or else you're going to be, you really are going to be that inferior creature to man that you better, you, you better uh, be this way, you better be that way. What, you know, the way, you know, and talk about God, but in so many words, you know, God didn't make you um, the way you can make yourself. So go out there and be this or that and, you know, flaunt what you got and get what you can and do this kind of a thing. And it's horrible. So the same thing's going on today, obviously on a grander scale, but Satan knew the beautiful design for the woman, so he attacked it and destroyed it. Ultimately, both Adam and the woman failed the test, as we know. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This first religion. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. That would have been a first. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which, of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave... <laughs> this always makes me laugh. He's such a worm. <laughs> right? The man said, The woman you gave to me... To be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So Adam blames the woman, which is typical of a fallen man. And it's true. And when God turns to the woman, she passes the blame on to the serpent, which is evidence of her fallen nature too. So verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we have the blame game up here on the board. Everybody's blaming everybody. Both the man and the woman compound their sinning by refusing to take responsibility for their own decisions. This is fruit of unrighteousness already showing through their fallen natures. Because, see, before, if there was something awry, they would have said, this is what's wrong. But you already see the way the human flesh responds to God. We lie. We cheat. We steal. We do all kinds of crazy things, and we compound issues. With the failure of the man and the woman in the garden comes the degraded existence of the sin nature that is part of the promised curse, you shall surely die. In the Bible, spiritual death refers to separation from God, of course. Look at Genesis 3.14. So, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, curse to you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, obviously that's a reference to Christ, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So up here on the board, we have, uh, we're just getting into the, the woman's curse. We're going to see this in a moment. The woman was cursed to bear pain during her most beloved act, which is childbirth. Furthermore, she would struggle with the godly designed authority in marriage that she is to submit to her husband. This is the basis of her curse. Uh, and as I've taught you in the past, most, you know, just it's pretty easy nowadays to see how every problem that is manifest in women today goes back to right to this curse. It's not hard to see where it's coming from. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Uh, yet your desire, that's Tashuka, will be for your husband. Again, you're going to want to lord over him, to rule him. And he will rule over you. So that's that ongoing contradiction that we see even today up here on the board. So the woman's desire, as part of the woman's curse, she would struggle forevermore with God's command to submit to her husband and her fleshly desire to lord over him to disrespect his authority. That's part of the woman's curse. He says, I'm gonna, you're going to be subordinate to him, but you're going to want to rule him. And so there's this tension uh, that is in the flesh of every woman. So Genesis 3.17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. So after cursing the serpent, Adam and Eve, the Lord God reveals his grace and mercy. So the, the curses continue, but God reveals his grace and mercy. You know the, the, the loin, you know, the covering of the loins or the fig leaves, 
that was, I wrote a blog on that one time. That was like the first religion. That was man's solution uh, instead of God, or in place of God's grace. God comes in with his grace, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Up here on the board. So God's provision. Because of the fall in the garden, the perfect relationship between Adam and Eve was broken. Bodily shame was now an issue among many other manifestations of the sin nature. God covered their sinfulness to help in their weaknesses. He made garments. This is a show of divine mercy and grace. And we can learn an awful lot about this. This is what I was saying at the start of class. How does God respond to something evil? In other words, did he, was he the author of it? He told them not to do this thing. And they did it anyways. Now, don't get into omniscience and the plan. I'm not talking about that. He told them not to do this thing. They did this thing. They created this evil act, if you would. But yet, he came in and covered their sinfulness to help in their weaknesses. And that's akin to all that talk we were talking about with like divorce even. That's not his will. That's not his will, but he's not going to throw you in the garbage if you get a divorce. Do you understand? There are going to be certain things between you and the Lord that you're going to have to deal with uh, throughout your life, probably scar, I don't know exactly. But he's merciful and he's gracious when we sin. And that's what we see here. From the very beginning, man and woman sinned and he graced them out afterwards. He addressed it. He told them what was going to happen, right? They didn't escape the curse. It wasn't like the garbage that gets taught today in religion. Well, God loves you so much that he, there's no wrath. I'm like, wait a minute, what? That there's no discipline. No, God, a good father, will discipline his children, right? Because he loves them. And if he says this is what's going to happen... If you do this thing, then this is exactly what happens. And so there's Adam and Eve who lived perfectly are now suffering. Just like you and me when we sin. Sin is for, the commands are for our own good. When we go contrary against the commands of God, do we not suffer? Yeah, just like he says we will, right? That's our judgment. That's our curse. It doesn't mean that he's not going to help us out after, but he doesn't say that he's going to take away the curse, the repercussions. That's the way it goes. And so you see how it goes from the very start. Man sins and God comes in with grace. But still the curse remained. The result of sinning remained. The consequences. And we can even relate to that today. So let us now concentrate our attention on the title of this lesson, which is God's divine design for the woman. From the account in Genesis, we understand that before the fall in the garden, the woman was happy and peaceful. So put yourself in her shoes. Before the fall, the woman was happy and peaceful. Eve loved her husband, Adam, assumably presumably, and was content being under his divinely ordained authority. 
In other words, there was no options. People need to stop thinking in options. You see, as soon as something like divorce becomes an option, then all hell breaks loose. In other words, if, there's no, if, if, if it's imprinted in your brain like it was with Eve, right? If it's imprinted in your, in your brain like it was with Eve, divorce would have never been an issue. It wouldn't even have been an option, right? And when there's a bazillion other people around, and all of a sudden there's options, all of a sudden the eyes start going like this. Mm-hmm. I have other options. Matter of fact, I can trade this model in for a new and better one, this kind of a thing. That never enters the mind of a pure thinking individual. Does that make sense? All these little things that we deal with today wouldn't have been there. Eve wouldn't have looked if there was mirrors, but they, as far as I know, there weren't. If Eve looked in the mirror, she wouldn't have been upset with her, how she looked, her body. And Adam would have walked by and would have been like, whoop, whoop. I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. Adam didn't catcall Eve as far as I know. You know what I'm saying, though? There wouldn't have been any, and it's the only person he would have looked at. Even after other people. That's what I'm saying. So it's not, you have to put yourself in that position. Before the fall, there was no malcontent. There was no anything. It was awesome. It was beautiful. Eve loved her husband, Adam, and was content being under his divinely ordained authority. And since Adam was the perfect husband before the fall, it was natural. This is one case where we can use the word natural and totally mean it. It was natural for Eve to submit to him since her nature hadn't been corrupted yet. It was totally natural. There would have been no other nature. It was totally natural for her to submit. There would have been no other way. Her eyes, her body, her self, nothing. Her consciousness would have been just totally ratcheted into Adam. And that would have been totally natural. But that was before her nature had fallen. There existed a harmonious relationship just as God had designed it. However, after the fall, both Adam and Eve were given sin natures that motivated them towards unrighteousness and evil thoughts. No longer was the perfect environment a reality. Therefore, we might say this, that God's design was compromised. The fall in the garden introduced many ungodly complexities in the union of Adam and Eve, No longer was peace and contentment the order of the day. Rather, struggle was ever-present in every aspect of living. That was part of the curse. Now it was a struggle to live. And the body was getting old. The body didn't get old before, but now it was because it was going to die physically. They were separated from God. They didn't have all the, the, the perfect union anymore. They didn't have the perfect fellowship with God anymore. Everything was corrupted now. And their, their sin nature was antagonistic even to the things that they ab- completely abided in previously. It's a horrible thing. So it went from totally beautiful to horrible. Um, this was manifest in the basic curses we just read about after the fall. As the family provider, Adam would forevermore struggle with providing for his family. He this would become temptation even for malcontent. Think about nowadays. Providing for one's family is a struggle for men. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes, frankly, ladies, believe it or not, sometimes maybe we don't want to get out of bed. Maybe we don't want to go to work. Maybe we're sick and tired of 
having to put up with that boss or some jackass or, you know, some ungrateful family that, you know, you come home to and they're just moaning about something. Who knows? I'm not saying I deal with that, but I'm saying these are the things. If you look around at men even today, you'll see malcontent where there should be elation. You'll see men hanging out, complaining about, you know, the ball and chain or having to support their kids at home, which is why some of them run off and leave their families behind. That is the fruit of malcontent. On the flip side, as the family caretaker, Eve would forevermore struggle with both childbirth and proper subordination to her husband. This is the basis of feminism in our country. And I'm talking about the evil side of feminism, not the elements of the movement that protect women from, like, abuse and what have you. So, the woman's curse manifests in sin. Not only was the woman's curse described after the fall in the Garden of Eden, but the manifestations of it have haunted mankind ever since. haunted mankind ever since. Look around. Look around. I mean, it's so flippin' obvious. For example, for you married women out there in this audience, have you ever desired to disobey your husband? That's a stupid question, huh? <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> have you ever wanted to do something contrary to his authority? Have you ever sinned by disrespecting your husband? These are all manifestations of the curse on women. Because God's perfect design was compromised, once women possessed a sin nature, we see many accounts of sinful women in the Bible. And if you look closely enough, you will be able to trace those sins all the way back to the original curse. They all go back to the original curse. And just as a side note, we're going to note some New Testament scripture here in a moment. Uh, I gave this to the audience there. What you must understand about the Bible is that accounts always have context to them, meaning that you must understand the audience and the circumstances of the text itself in order to understand the full meaning of it. For example, it is very often the case that a New Testament writer was responding to a problem in the churches. Even the problem uh, is, you know, even if the problem is implied, not spoken of directly in the passage. This means that if the writer is making a statement or a command, it is because he is responding to a situation that has arisen in the church. For example, let us consider, go to 1 Timothy 2.9. 1 Timothy 2.9. We have a situation here that Paul had to deal with, and he was instructing his disciple Timothy as to how to deal with it. But, lo and behold, it's a nice example of where we're going to see this idea of Teshuka or this woman's curse uh, being sort of borne out. 1 Timothy 2.9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. 
A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now that requires a little bit of a context here. There was presumably an issue in the churches where women were being or beginning to teach or desired to teach from behind pulpits even. In other words, they were starting to stand where I'm standing. And Paul said, no, no, that's not the divine order of things. Which is amazing that this verse exists and there are women pastors all around here, so-called pastors. It's a joke. I don't understand what Bible they're reading. They must throw out scripture or something. The same Bible that says a pastor must be the husband of one wife. Well, how do you be the husband of one wife if you're a woman? Uh, It's amazing. And then you've got people following these idiots that stand behind pulpits. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Any questions on that? What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, yeah, women are not supposed to teach in a church. That's that. End of story. So there was presumably an issue in the churches where women were beginning to teach or desire to teach from behind pulpits. This is something that God has not ordained, but certainly something a woman's sin nature would desire to shuka to do. Now just think about that. Just think about that. There's no, let's face it, there's hardly a higher calling than to teach the Word of God. Right? Hebrews 13 says, Submit to those in authority over you. Obey them. Huh. So if I'm a woman and I want to lord over men, man, I'll tell you what, one really good place to start would be behind a pulpit because the rest of Scripture says you all men have to subordinate to me. And God says, "Uh, uh, 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 uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, I did not design it that way at all. But do you understand how Teshuka would want to do that? Do you understand how a woman would really, really, really want to stand behind a pulpit? Yeah, that's Teshuka. And Paul was against it, as am I, vehemently, obviously, today. So again, this is what was going on, that the woman's sin nature wanted to be in this position of authority, for it would imply that man has become subservient to woman. But look at verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. In the context, of course, is in churches. Okay? I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. What in the world are some of the women standing behind pulpits? What do they say about that, this whole passage? I really want to know. Oh, well, that's old. You're an idiot. Go sit down and be quiet. Oh, I'm making friends, ain't I? <laughs> this will be the one they run on Seacomp Channel 9, right? Hello. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctify with self-restraint. So up here on the board, just to stick to our topic at hand, though, the ongoing struggle until a woman is relieved of her old sin nature, either at the rapture of the church or through physical death, she will continue to struggle with her curse and require encouragement 
to flee from her temptations. That's why the Bible says, husbands, love your wives. They're going to need it because they're having a hard time submitting to you. You could be a, a wonderful husband, and they're still going to have a hard time submitting to you because it's their curse. And so you've got to love them. You have to understand that that's part of their struggle. It would be like living with an alcoholic. You would say, I understand. You've got this problem. Um, I'm not going you know, I'm I'm to work with you here. I'm going to try to help you here. Or, you know, they got some other addiction or some other thing that they're struggling with. I mean, true love, right, covers a multitude of sins. True love is going to work with that person out of love. And so, men, if you know what the Bible says about the woman's curse and you happen to be married and you're commanded to love her, then keep an eye out for it. Understand that she's struggling. It's part of her curse. doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean you succumb to it. It doesn't mean that you kowtow to it. It means that you understand it. And to whatever degree possible, I guess, work with it and help her flee from her temptations. God did not design women to be this way. Just think about that. God did not design women to be this way. They fell. But as we have seen, as a result of her fallen nature, she will continue to struggle. As encouragement to you women hearing my voice this day, please know that God has made it possible for you to overcome your sinful flesh. And this ability begins at salvation. The only way you will ever be able to overcome your struggles in any degree with the old sin nature is if you are first saved by grace through faith. Go to Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians 2.1. This is why I, I would think for some of you ladies out there that may have friends that are unsaved, some of the things that you're going to talk about in marriage are not going to make any sense to them. They're going to look at you as some kind of uh, cave woman or something, some kind of Neanderthalic ancient creature that crawled out of, you know, you know what I'm getting at? They're going to be looking, they're going to be like, I, yeah, because their heart hasn't even been changed. They don't even have the apparatus to understand what Paul was just teaching on. They're not motivated. Do you understand? They, they, they're still trying to, where's my piggy? Oh, there she is. <laughs> this is them. Some of the, I should put a little Louis Vuitton bag right here <laughs> and some uh, coach shoes and some, uh, I don't know, what do women wear for, I don't know. I don't know if about it, obviously, right? But that's what women in this world are trying to do. They're trying to dress up the pig. And you're, and you're saying, I'm not, I, I, not to be gross, but I am a pig and I'm not, you know, I've been changed though I was. I'm not changed. Now I'm not, I don't have to dress up the pig anymore. Now I'm a new creature and I just want to be pleasing to the Lord. So whatever it, you know, whatever is pleasing to him, I have my struggles but, I mean, try to talk like that to some feminist. She's going to be like, what's wrong with you? Well, you? Okay, sweetie. Okay, you go submit to your husband. Okay, sweetie. You go be a little, you go run along with Laura Ingalls Wilder and Little House on the Prairie. You go be, you know, the next group of, you know, oppressed women. They're not going to even understand the first thing. So, the point I left these lovely ladies with in India was you got to first be saved. 
Because none of this is going to make sense. You're not going to be motivated. You might try to be moral. You might be a, you know, a nice little wife or something like that or, you know, what, however the world decides that nowadays. But you're not going to understand these things. You're not going to be motivated this way. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You hear that, ladies? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's possible, ladies, for you to walk. I just taught on walking by the Spirit. So do not be discouraged up here in the board. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Acts 16.31. Once saved, you have access to God's power, which is infinitely stronger than your sinful flesh. If you abide in Him, you will be able to overcome your struggles. You will be sanctified. A sanctified woman is a godly woman. A godly woman is a virtuous woman. This is the topic of our next lesson the virtuous woman. That is on Sunday. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you so much for giving us truth that sets us free, Father. It's just so antagonistic to the world's belief system, Father, but who cares? This is your truth and this is the truth that matters. May we have the uh, perseverance, the tenacity, and the courage by your grace and mercy, to take these things out to a lost and dying world, Father. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.